You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, I have one request. Somebody needs to save me a baby bite. Because I saw them, and those are a fabulous thing. So, <laughs> all right. Um, well, I will sort of sit here, and I hope everybody can hear me. And um, it's uh, a joy to be with you all. Um, and uh, I want to talk about the book of Ruth tonight. And that's a book I know that a lot of you have studied probably pretty extensively before. Is that fair? Most of you studied Ruth a time or two. So, yeah, so it's a great book. It's a short one. It's uh, about a faithful woman, which is, which is nice. Um, and it's, uh, it, you know, it's a really lovely story. And so I think that's why Ruth is often um, people's favorites. It's one of the favorite of the Old Testament books. And it's certainly one of my favorite ones as well. Um, but, uh, there's, uh, there's a huge amount going on in Ruth. And as I was thinking about what to talk about tonight, um, I'm actually going to talk about something that's maybe seems a little unusual for studying the book of Ruth. So for those of you that have studied it a lot, hopefully it'll be a little new information for those of you who haven't studied it. Just hang in there with me and go home and read it later. So, <laughs> um, but, um, so the book of Ruth, who can tell me what time frame the book of Ruth is set? Ruth, right, Ruth 1-1, one, one, in the days when the judges ruled. So let's set our scene historically here. The days of the judges. So we're all familiar with the Exodus, right? Passover and Exodus. And Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of genocide. And uh, he leads them through the Yam Suf, the Red Sea, on dry land. God does that miracle there. Um, and they, then they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Why do they wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Because they were not ready. And the not being ready happens. And you've all, I, I hope you all got the handout with the map. So the not being ready happens when they are in biblical Negev. So if you look at the map there. Um, you'll see an era, a town called Beersheba or Beersheba in Hebrew. And they send the spies in up Beersheba, up, it's known as the Water Ridge Route. So up to Hebron, it's, it's still one of the main north-south routes in Israel. It's been a main north-south route in that neck of the woods since the early Bronze Age, so we're talking about 6,000 years, that's been a main north-south route. And so the spies go in that way and they come back and they say, yes, it is indeed a land with milk and honey. And they bring back the big bunch of grapes. And in fact, one of the Israel Israelite um, uh, tourism symbols these days is two guys carrying a bunch of grapes between them that is as tall as they are. So massive bunches of grapes. And have any of you read The Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain? 
So anyway, it's if you like Mark Twain, it's a good one to read. Anyway, I was rereading it recently, his discussion of his time in Israel, and he talks about being so disappointed when he got to the Holy Land and realized that their grape clusters were just ordinary size <laughs> because he'd always imagined them that big. And um, anyway, it's just really funny. And he's like, I've had to really reevaluate some things uh, from my Sunday school picture Bible. Um, but, uh, and, but they go in and they realize that God is, is bringing them into this good place. But they say, there are giants there and there's no way we can go in. And so the people say, we don't want to do this. Don't make us do this. We would rather go back to Egypt, which is crazy, right? Because what was going on in Egypt? It wasn't just slavery. What's the big problem with Egypt? It's genocide. They were literally trying to exterminate the Israelites. And there was no, no Yahweh. They, you know, can't, can't worship. And they're trying to kill them as a people group. So, but they're like, we'd rather go back there. So God's like, okay, you're not ready yet. But I'm going to make you ready. So we're going to wander for some time. And so they wander for some time. And then they come in. And on your map, you'll see the red arrow. They actually come in up the other side of the River Jordan. They come up through Edom. Does anybody know the connection between Israel and Edom? Esau. Jacob and Esau were brothers. Jacob is renamed Israel. And Esau becomes the father of the nation of Edom. And those are related words in Hebrew. They come up through Edom. Edom doesn't want him to stay there, even though they're sort of related. You better keep going. Then they come into Moab. And Moab doesn't want him to stay there. But guess what? They're related to Moab, too. And who, does anybody remember Moab? Right, Lot. So Sodom and Gomorrah, remember the Sodom and Gomorrah story? And Lot and his wife and daughters escape. But what does his wife do? She looks back. Don't we have a tendency to do that? <laughs> she looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. But Lot escapes with his two daughters and they hide in a cave. And they become afraid that the whole world is ended. And in their fear, they have illicit relations with their father, the two girls, and each of the girls has a kid. One of the sons born of this illicit relationship is called Moab, which means seed of the father. So Moab is like a cousin. And why does all this matter with the book of Ruth? Because all of this is important for us to really understand the depths of what is going on in this book. So Moab, though, is interesting because Moab tries to stop the Israelites coming through their territory. And one of the ways they try to stop it is the king, by the name of Balach, calls for a mighty prophet of the pagan gods. Does anybody remember his name? Balaam. And Balaam says, sure, I'll go for a good sum. I'll go and curse Israel for you. No trouble. I'm happy to do that. That seems like reasonable work. Only Balaam has, is riding on a donkey. I'm trying to get my husband to let me have a donkey, but he won't. <laughs> um, that's just an aside. 
but um, so Balaam is riding on his donkey, and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and says, I'm not going a step further. And God basically tells Balaam, you will not curse my people because they are my people and I have plans for them. And so in the end, Balaam has to bless the Israelites. They're able to make it through the kingdom of Moab. And then they come to Mount Nebo, which I've underlined on your map. And Mount Nebo is the place where Moses gives the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament. And he recounts God's history with the people. He recounts their sin. He recounts God's faithfulness. And he tells the people, when you come into the land that God has given you, do not forget that it is God who has given you everything that is good. And it is God who will give you everything that is good. Because if you forget him and rely on your own strength instead of God's faithfulness, what will happen? You will have drought. God will shut the heavens and there will be drought. And if there is drought, what else is there? There is famine. And so Moses says, don't forget that it is God who gives you every good thing. And then Moses dies and is buried on Mount Nebo in Moab. Then Joshua takes over. Joshua, remember that name Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua which when it comes to English through Aramaic is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. So Joshua then brings the people into the promised land across the Jordan on dry land, another crossing of the water. And they come into the land and where do they go first? Jericho. And I was in the Marine Corps and let me tell you, that is the goofiest battle plan I've ever read. <laughs> but what happens? It works. The whole battle plan is march around the city and blow the trumpet, the shofar, the ram's horn. Okay, I'm sorry, but if I had presented that to one of my commanding officers, they'd have fired me and probably had me sectioned. But um, <laughs> anyway, it works. Why? Because it's all God, right? And so they come in and they conquer, but they don't conquer all of it because they keep chickening out, right? Why do they chicken out? Maybe God can't do it this time. Maybe God can't do it this time. How many of us live there? <laughs> maybe God can't do it this time. I better do it because maybe God can't do it this time. But, uh, but in the end, they take most of the area, but not all of it. And because they don't take all of it, what happens? Things start going bad wrong. They also stop, they, they start doing what Moses warned them about, and they forget that God did all of it and that God does all of it and that God should be the center of their lives. 
And so we get to the book of Judges, which is really, it's one of the hardest books in the whole Bible. Because the book of Judges is this complete roller coaster of God and Israel. So Israel, and the theme of the book of Judges is everyone did what was right in the sight of their own eyes, which means they don't care what God wants. They're doing what they want. And so every time they do that, everything starts to go wrong. And what happens? Other people come in and take them over. You know, there's famine, there's war. They end up being oppressed over and over. And then they repent and return to the Lord. And what happens? God blesses them. He raises up a judge. And here, don't think of like a Supreme Court judge. Think of a leader, someone who is wise. Or not always, though. Samson, not so wise. Anyway, um, he's a bit of a train wreck, actually. But God works through him anyway, which is something that I find great comfort in. And But things get worse and worse. Every time they cycle down, it gets a little lower. Till the end of the book of Judges is one of the most horrific passages in the Bible. And it is a passive passage, basically, of... Uh, mass murder and mass rape. It's horrible. Everything is absolutely grim and there is drought and there is famine and there is internecine warfare and there is oppression. And as you finish the book of Judges, you are left with this great weight of heaviness that maybe God has abandoned his people because they refused to hear him. And then the book of Ruth opens. And the book of Ruth is, in this context, one of the most amazing passages of God's grace and forgiveness that you read anywhere. So in the book, in the year, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. God shut the heavens. Rain is a sign of God's blessing in a land that really the, the, main, the main river is what? The Jordan. And the Jordan is right in the middle of the Great Rift. So most of the people are living up in the hills because the Great Rift is hot and kind of horrible. And it's hard to cultivate stuff. So you want stuff to grow, which means you have to live in the hills. But if you need water from the river, you got to go down, which on foot is about two days. So you're not watering your crops with the river from the Jordan. So you've got to have God's rain. And God actually says when he's bringing the people into the land, I'm not, you're not going to be living in a place like Egypt where you water your fields by kicking your heel. And this is a fun little historical geography thing. In Egypt, they have all these little dikes. And to get the water from one field into the next, you just kick the soft soil and the water runs into the next field. It's not how it works in Israel. You've got to have the rain, which is a sign of God's blessing. So there is famine. There is drought. God is unhappy. And he is trying to get his people's attention. And... Though, when you can't feed your family, what do you do? You go somewhere where you're going to be able to feed your family. And so the way the rains work is that 
the area around Jerusalem and all of that gets less rain than across the Jordan in Moab, they get more rain. It's just one of those hydrographical realities. And so this guy who is from the area of Bethlehem, he's an Ephrathite. So that means he's from the clan of Ephrata, of the tribe of Judah. And he lives near Bethlehem. It's kind of an important little place. Who else lives in Bethlehem? <laughs> David, and then Jesus. Jesus, right. So it's an important little spot, but it's an interesting spot because it's right on the rain line. So it's right in that place where if there's a drought, they get hit, hurt, hit first because they only, they get less than seven inches of rain a year. It all comes within a three-month period, by and large. And so they don't grow wheat there. They can only grow barley. That's all that'll grow. So if there's a drought, they get hit first. So this guy by the name of Elimelech, which means um, God is my king. That's what that name means. It's a great name. You should name your kids that. They'll get beaten up in school, though, so maybe not. Um, and he takes his wife, Naomi, which means pleasantness and there are two kids don't call your kids this malon and chilion which means sickly and frail <laughs> so we kind of know what's coming right who names their kids sickly and frail i'm like come on people so anyway but th those are their kids and he takes them over to moab so from bethlehem if you look at your maps and this is important and this is something we mostly miss when we read this. They're living in Bethlehem. To get over to Moab, you're not going to go down south and then across the Dead Sea. Why not? Because it is hot and dry, and you'll probably die on the way unless you're really, really well provisioned. And we know they're not really well provisioned. So you go up, you go north. You go kind of past Jerusalem, and then you go down via Jericho. And then you cross the River Jordan right there. And then you go up past Mount Nebo. And then you keep going into Moab proper. And on your maps there, you'll see that that area is partially one of the tribal allotments. But it seems to have been really contested at this point in Israelite history. So there were probably some towns that were Israelite and some that were still Moabite. So this is contested area. But this is where he takes his family. And how long are, is this family, this Jewish family, well, that's not, this Israelite family living in Moab? Ten years. Ten is an interesting number in Hebrew. You've got two really important numbers in Hebrew. You've got seven, the number of creation, and 10, which is kind of a, a number of perfection. So 10 is like, this is the right amount of time. This is not an accident. This is the right amount of time for God to be doing something new. While this family is living in Moab, guess what Malon and Chilion do? 
Well, they first, before they die, they get sick and frail. <laughs> yeah, we knew that was coming, right? <laughs> they marry Moabite women. Okay, this is a really big problem because in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, the word was, no Amorite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord to the 10th generation. Now, that's, there's, a multi, there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, Moab and Ammon, his brother, were conceived in deadly sin. All right? So that's part of the reason, according to Deuteronomy. The other part of the reason is because the Moabites tried to prevent the Israelites from getting through their territory to get to the promised land. So they fought against God's will. If no Moabite is permitted to enter the assembly, what does this mean about marrying Moabite women? You have a big problem now. Your women, that your wives are technically not permitted to be part of Israel, and children born of this match are not permitted to be part of Israel to the 10th generation. It seems like these guys have just done something pretty terrible. And this is why I love this, because God has different plans. God has different plans. So, but I, you need to keep this in mind. This is like, this is, we don't want this intermarriage. This is what the Israelites said, but God's doing something here, and, and it's important. So, um, so Malon and Chilion die. And Elimelech dies. So what does this mean for these three women now? In the ancient world, they are widows, which means they're destitute. They're without protection. Naomi's in a really bad spot because she's not even a resident of Moab. None of them have children either. So they're all now childless widows. And in the ancient world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, to have been childless was seen as almost being cursed by the gods. If you did not have a kid, it was obviously because you had some heinous sin or because your gods just didn't like you. And remember, the Moabites are not really worshiping Yahweh at this time. And it seems that Ruth and her, you know, and, and Orpah are... are more Moabite because later we're going to see that Ruth converts, right? So they seem to be worshiping all these pagan gods. So these women now are in kind of mortal peril, as well as being seen as kind of having sin cooties, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to be around these, these two young ladies because they didn't have kids, so there must be something dead wrong with them. And they're all widows, so that's a double strike. So this is they are in deadly peril right now. And Naomi is obviously heartbroken. And so she says to the girls, um, <laughs> poor, poor Naomi, she's like, look, I'm just going to go home and die. 
because it's all over for me. I'm just done here. And she says to the girls, y'all just go back to your families and maybe they'll take you back and maybe you can get remarried at some point. And Orpah, after a while, says she'll go and Ruth says she won't. And here I just have to share this. So um, so for those of you that don't know, I, I got to live in Israel for a year and got to do a lot of studying of rabbinic texts and other stuff. So one of the Jewish midrash on the book of Ruth is really interesting. It says that Ruth and Orpah were sisters and they were royal sisters. It says they are actually the daughters of Eglon, who we read about in Judges chapter 3, who was himself the son of Balak, the guy who got tried to get Balaam to curse the Israelites. And that the um, and they said the name Orpah, and of course tracing tracing old ancient Semitic names back is always interesting. The name Orpah means either neck or fawn. Um, but uh, but basically the, the Jewish uh, Rabbah says you know, basically it meant that she turned her back on her mother-in-law and that she then remarries and that her, one of her children, this is so interesting, is Goliath. Isn't that interesting? Jewish Midrash. Nothing to support that biblically, but I love Jewish Midrash because it's super interesting for that. So, um, and for them that makes a lot of sense because who is Ruth's, one of Ruth's descendants? David who kills, and so basically the Jewish Midrash says, because Orpah was not faithful to her mother-in-law, her kid winds up getting killed by basically, you know, one of the distant cousins, because Ruth was faithful. And Ruth is a super interesting name. Um, it's related to, it's related to a number of ancient Hebrew words, um, but, um, it's, uh, and just as a little aside here, um, it can mean, we, again, we, scholars, are, there are several possible roots. It, it most likely is related to friend or companion, because she is a companion to Naomi. But it also is related to the word for understanding, someone who truly looks and understands. Because within Judaism, Ruth becomes this wise, wise woman and this exemplar of a, of a perfect convert because she looked and she understood who the true God was and what her responsibility was. It's also interesting because it's related to another word that means pasture, which in the participle means shepherd. So she... Ruth is related to a word for shepherd who will be the mother or the grandmother of David, who is the shepherd king, right? So, so I think some of that is interesting, but Orpah turns back and I'm sorry, but um, I love the Jewish Midrash, but the fact of the matter is I get why Orpah turned back, you know, here she is and it's scary and dangerous. And Naomi has just said, look, just go back because I'm just going to go to Bethlehem and die. So you're a Moabite widow. Do you really want to be trotting off? And it's a hard journey. And um, so Orpah's like, okay, well, I love you. Good luck. <laughs> Send me a Christmas card. Um, <laughs> Ruth, though, of course, has that beautiful passage. You know, whither thou goest, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Ruth converts. 
And in her conversion, she actually also fulfills the command to honor your father and mother. Um, which within the Jewish understanding, that's a bridge command that takes you back to the first commands, which are about loving God. So Ruth here, through her care for her mother-in-law, is also becoming a good follower of the one true God. And so they then, verse chapter 1, verse 19, so of the, the two of them leave Moab and go on until they come to Bethlehem. How do they get back to Bethlehem? They go up from Moab. They come past Mount Nebo. They go down into the Jordan Rift. They cross the Jordan River. They come past Jericho. They go up the hill, past Jerusalem, down to Bethlehem. What has just happened? They reverse their course, but they have also started the history of Israel again. And this is why it's so important to know the route for the coming into the land. Because Judges has just said everything went wrong. Maybe God abandoned us. So literally this faithful family... They leave, and Ruth and Naomi start the story again. It is not just a fresh start for Ruth and for Naomi. It is a fresh start for the whole people of God. This journey is so important because it is like a big old national do-over. And what comes out of this? David. And things aren't perfect, but literally God is saying, things have gone so wrong. I am literally going to start over, but he does it in a very interesting and different way. He does it with Naomi, who is from the tribe of Judah, that, is because, that will be the tribe of kings, right? And ultimately the tribe of the Messiah. But who is really the key mover in this passage? Other than God. God's always the key mover. But who is the key person in this story? Who is a Moabite, a Gentile, who basically they were like, we don't want anything to do with you because, you know, you all are terrible Gentiles. And God says... You have no clue what I am doing. His grace and mercy are absolutely remarkable through this Moabite woman. This whole national do-over through a Moabite woman who is also a widow and a childless widow. Everything that could possibly have been in the rest of the ancient Near East, would it, that would have been seen as like, you stay out. God says, no, you have no clue about the depth of my grace. 
You have no clue about the broadness of my plan, about the heights and depths of my love. And so when sometimes people say to me, <laughs> you know, Jesus uh, didn't know about God's plan for the Gentiles until later, I am like, oh, yes, he did. Let's talk about Ruth. Because God was always bringing them in. He was always doing this. And is not this incredible how God shows the people of Israel, you get a new start in the most unexpected ways because I am always doing wonderful, unexpected things. And I love this about the book of Ruth. And we miss this because we don't get our geography a lot. But, um, you know, I'm a boring Matt. I love maps. So, um, so, you know, this is one of the things that is really, really important because it's not just a story about one woman or two women. It is a story about the whole nation. So then we move into... Um, uh, into the next bit of the story, and Carolyn throws something at my head as we're getting through to time. So um, we then get into the next bit of the story, and they get back. But it is the time of the harvest, right? So, which means it's uh, it's around Pentecost. So the barley harvest um, starts it at Passover, so Easter, and it goes. It usually lasts for about 50 days, um, and it ends around Passover, or excuse me, Pentecost, or in Hebrew, Shavuot. And so they're coming in at this time. So, um, so that means that al although because of tribal allocation, Naomi would have still had a, a field and land that belonged to Elimelech and his family, she missed what if she's coming back at harvest? She missed planting season, which means her field doesn't have anything in it. So you're coming back. So she's come back. Why? Why has she come back? To die. To die. So she's not worried about it. But now Naomi's with her and Naomi's like, okay, I mean, I love, or excuse me, Ruth is with her and Ruth's like, Naomi, I love you, but maybe we don't want to die just yet. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe there's some good. God, God can do things. And so... Um, so they, you know, I always imagine them sitting around and Naomi's like feeling really sorry for herself and Ruth is like, come on, let's, let's go. And so they, they hatch a plan and they, and Ruth goes out to glean and God commanded that people in their fields were to leave the edges uncut so that the poor could come and have food. And so this is what Ruth does. And she winds up in a field of a relative because that's the way tribal clan allotments worked. Um, uh, you know, and it's Boaz. And that name means strength. It's a great name. Boaz mean, means strength. And she winds up gleaning in his field. And he sees her and he thinks, she's kind of a cutie. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, so he is very taken with her. But mostly, what is, what is Boaz taken with about Ruth? She's industrious. And she was kind to her mother-in-law. Boaz is taken by not, I mean, I, you know, probably she was cute, but mostly with Ruth's heart that she would be willing to risk her life to be with Naomi. 
And so Boaz, who is also a good, strong man in the Lord, then says, you know, just leave a lot more and drop a bunch. (laughs) So in the end, she goes home that first day, we're told, um, with um, uh, an ephah of barley, which is about 50 pounds. That is a goodly amount. So we started in famine, and now what do we have? Abundance. And should there have been abundance for Ruth and Naomi? No. Why is there abundance for Ruth and Naomi? God. God's grace, right? Boaz is kind, but what the story is telling us is this is God's grace. That they have come back, they have been faithful, and God's blessing is abundant for them. And, um, and so, um, you know, the story goes on with Ruth and Boaz and the seduction scene, but even that seduction scene is wonderful. So chapter two, verse 12, um, Boaz blesses Ruth with these words for taking care of Naomi. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She is fully in the assembly of the Lord. And Boaz prays that blessing on her. And then in the seduction scene a little later, when Ruth goes to the threshing floor and lays down at Boaz's feet, Ruth says to him, uh, in verse uh, nine, chapter three, nine, I am Ruth. I am companion, your servant. Spread your, some translations say cloak. The Hebrew word is kanaf, which can translate as cloak or wings. Spread your wings over me. Um, and, uh, for you are a redeemer. Now she's using the technical term there about leveret marriage and redemption. But I think God is speaking something bigger here into both of their lives. To redeem someone in leveret marriage meant that if your brother or a close kinsman had been married and he died without a child, the next nearest male kinsman was to marry that woman and the first child of that union technically belonged to the dead husband. And the reason for that was to keep that family line and to protect the land. Why did you have to protect the land? Because if you didn't have land, you didn't eat. So this is that idea of redeeming for life. Um, Of course, when we think about our Redeemer now, we think about the same thing. Not as technically in terms of land and, you know, having to marry your cousin or your husband's cousin. That's kind of weird, maybe. But um, but the same idea that the Redeemer is the one who ensures your life and your future. 
who saves you from destitution, who saves you from slavery. Because guess what happened? If Naomi and Ruth had not been able to glean enough to eat, guess how they would have had to have eaten? By selling themselves into slavery. And once you sold yourself into slavery, guess what? You almost never got out unless someone came from the outside and bought you out of slavery because every meal you ate, every night you slept, every piece of clothing that you were given when you were in slavery, you were charged for. So you could never work your way out. And so this redeemer is all of this. And so she is asking Boaz to ensure her future, to ensure Naomi's future, to give them life. But it is with the same language that Boaz blessed her with. So who is ultimately the redeemer and life giver? God is under his wing. And so Boaz um, says, I would love to redeem you, but there's a closer kinsman. So we got to do this all above board. And so the next day they meet at the city gates, which is where all these things took place because it was kind of like, um, it's like Starbucks today, right? Everything happens at Starbucks. Um, and so you did this in public and the nearer redeemer and Boaz is so funny here. He, he does a little bait and switch. He's like, well, do you want Naomi? Do you want Elimelech's field? And the guy's like, oh, sure. I'd love to have extra land. And he says, okay, well, that's good. But then you get Ruth and Naomi as well. And he's like, mm, I don't think I want to do that. And so Boaz was very cunning in a very Middle Eastern way. I love it. And, uh, and so, so the closer kinsman says, who, by the way, notice is not named, is not named. And that's significant in the Bible. It's like, it's like the Pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus. We never are told Pharaoh's name. Whose name do you think you'd get? You think you'd get the king's name, right? The king is not named at the beginning of the Exodus. Does anybody remember who is named? The midwives, because they do God's bidding. They are faithful. So we get the name of these two midwives who wouldn't have counted for much according to society's rules at the time, but we're never told the name of the Pharaoh because guess what? God doesn't care. <laughs> God cares about those two midwives. We're never told the name of this closer kinsman, but we know who Boaz is for all time. Isn't that lovely? I love how God does that. You know, he has called us by name and we are his. So Boaz is his. And so Boaz and Ruth, who he names clearly in chapter four as a Moabite, they're not hiding this. This is again, this amazing sign of what God is doing. And, um, and then uh, they, are, they get married. And here is this blessing. So in chapter 4 over, over Ruth and um, Boaz, God, the, the prayer is all the people who are at the gate, uh, chapter 411, um, and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. These are the two great matriarchs of Israel, Rachel and Leah. You know, most of the kids from the 12 tribes are from Rachel and Leah. May this Moabite be like Rachel and Leah. They're all, they are leaning in to, this is a prophetic word here, that, that, that this Ruth, this Moabite widow, childless woman, is going to be counted among the matriarchs of God's people. Everything was against her. 
except God who had and the most amazing plans for her. So may she be like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. Ruth's grandson is going to build up the house of Israel into a kingdom led by God. Everything seemed terrible, but God had other plans. Um, and may, uh, may you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. Verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And this is another fascinating connection. Who remembers the story of Tamar and Judah? Okay, so Tamar was, guess what? She was a Canaanite. She is also not an Israelite. She is an outsider. Well, Judah, though, is looking for a wife for his oldest son. And so there's this Canaanite woman. So they get married. Well, he's not a good guy. And so God strikes him dead. And that's a whole nother class. We're not going to talk about that tonight. And so Tamar invokes lever at marriage. And she gets son number two, who's also not a good guy. Guess what happens to son number two? Right. So now Judah has one son left. And he's like, this woman is a black widow. Nuh-uh. I want my third son to survive. So even though he was required under the rules of leveret marriage, he says to Tamar, well, you know, my youngest is pretty young right now, so let's wait a while. And so Tamar waits and waits, which, by the way, in, the ancient, in ancient Israel, you know, the average lifespan was like 40-something. So she doesn't have a lot of time to wait. But she waits, and Judah is kind of not doing what he should. And so does anybody remember what Tamar does? She dresses up like a prostitute and she seduces Judah when he's out tending his sheep and goats in the fields far away. And they uh, have relations. And he says, I can't pay you. I forgot my, I forgot my pocketbook. <laughs> forgot my wallet. Um, but, you know, I'll send one of my guys to bring you a couple nice sheep because <laughs> that's how you got paid back in the day. And, um, and she's like, well, you know, you need to give me a surety that you're going to send the sheep back. And so she asks for his signet and his staff. These are two signs. I mean, they're like, literally like, give me your, your driver's license. <laughs> and uh, so he does. Well, and then Tamar, of course, is pregnant. So once she starts showing, Judah is like, ah, I have a way out. She has committed adultery. What happens to women who commit adultery? They get stoned to death. So he's like, ha. And then she whips out the signet and the staff. And she's like, this kid's yours. Because you did not do right by me or your son. And so this is, this is God's plan. And it seems like a really weird story to us, right? But this is the way life was in the ancient Near East. So who is in the right in the whole Tamar Judah thing? Tamar, right, which is so clearly said. And Tamar has these two twins, and Perez then is the line, is the key line who is, and Perez, by the way, is the younger of the two. Even though they're twins, he's the second born. So God, again, up turning things upside down. Um, but it's interesting because Tamar, like Ruth, is an outsider who seemed to have everything going against her, twice widowed and childless both times. 
and an outsider. It's the story happening again and God redeeming it and saying, I am bringing the whole world in. And so this is the blessing and again, a prophetic word. And so um, they have this child. Um, and it's interesting though, because, um, and I, I love this, the women of the neighborhood name him which is so unusual, very, very unusual. Um, but this is, this is like literally like, like the women singing God's praises and naming him. And the name they give him is Obed, which means servant, and it's probably short. His full name was probably Obadiah, which means servant of the Lord. And they name him. And, but it's cute, though. A son has been born to Naomi. And here's another little aside. Naomi changes her name. You remember, she gets to town and she's like, I just want to die. And she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter, which by the way is also an important connection with the whole coming into the land because you remember the Mara, the oasis of Mara, where the water was bitter and Moses throws a piece of wood into it and what happens? It becomes sweet. And in early Christian tradition, they allegorized that a bit and said that the waters of life are bitter until the wood of the cross touches them and then they are made sweet. It's so beautiful. So um, Mara is again, that name is again reminding us of that Exodus journey. But notice what happens though. There is not one place that anybody ever calls her Mara. Her name is always Naomi. And names are so important in the Bible. So God does not accept the name bitterness because even though she feels sad and bitter, and we all, I get it, I get it. Gosh, what a terrible thing to lose your husband and two of your children. I can't even imagine. But God says, no, I have pleasantness for you. And you don't see how that's going to happen, but I do. And so it is this wonderful story. And so they put this baby, not in Ruth's arms, but in Naomi's arms and say, here is your son, the servant of the Lord. Just as Ruth was your companion in the Lord, so this child born to strength and companion is, is a blessing and a pleasantness for you. And then at the very end, we get the genealogy that Obadiah is the father of Jesse, the father of David, who, who blesses Israel, who then is the father, <laughs> through many lines, of Jesus. And in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, there are a few women named. There's Tamar and there's Ruth, who both are named in the genealogy of Jesus. God's plan was always for the Gentiles to be brought in because he did it from the beginning. And God's plans, even in the midst of our worst day, are pleasantness because he has spread his wing over us. And we don't get to be Mara because in our, in his eyes, we are always Naomi pleasantness. So that's Ruth. And it's not just her story, but it's the story for the whole people of Israel, the people of Jesus. And remember when God called Abraham out of 
out of the land. Do you remember what he said? Go to a place that I will show you. And then he gives him blessings. And he says, you know, through you and your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it comes through this line. So anyway, there you go. That's a run through Ruth. So. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh, questions? Yeah, Liz. I was wondering, when did the rabbis or whomever figure out that this is a, a new start for Israel? Oh. Because it's a little hidden. It's, you know, it's really not hidden if you live in the land. Um, because, you know, and it, because the exodus is so present for the Israelites um, it, it's, uh, for, for the people of Judah, you know, that, that's a very, uh, very strong connection, um, for, for them because it's so, they live there, right? So it's easy to see that connection and Mount Nebo and everything with Moses is just so strong for them. It's hidden for us because, um, because the Exodus story is not as clear for us and because we don't, you know, when you go down to Jericho, you know, we don't always know what we're seeing on the other side of the River Jordan. But yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, I love some of the Midrash, though. It's really fun. So other questions? If you have a chance to go to Israel, go. Yeah, yeah. Just love it. Yeah, it'll change the way you read the Bible. Um, however, you don't have to go because God speaks without it. But if you get a chance, you should go. So... Oh. One more question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, in verse um, uh, 17, I say, and the, wait a minute, I don't have my glasses. Here you are. Verse 16. Uh huh. Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Right. Well, usually they meant the fresh nurse. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, in chapter 4, verse 16, Kathy was asking about Naomi becoming the child's nurse, and usually that would indicate wet nurse, but that probably, she was not able to fulfill that wet nurse role, but she cared for him somehow, yeah, yeah, so yeah, because she was probably 32 at that point, and you know, <laughs> so... I know, I tell you, Iron Age life was hard. <laughs> so, yeah, other questions? So those are pictures that I took, yeah, and um, you've got a few, so um, I just thought you might enjoy seeing some of those. So um, the first one of, with the Book of Ruth, that's actually um, the wheat crop around the time of Pentecost, which, by the way, that's a whole other teaching, Ruth's use within Judaism at Shavuot, which is really interesting. But that's, that's up on, um, that's, uh, you're north of Jerusalem there in what's known as the Benjamin Plateau. And it's, a be it's just beautiful. Um, and I'm, so I'm looking into kind of the heartland of Israel from there. The other one, Dibon, is the ancient capital of Moab. And you'll see that on your map. And um, there, the, uh, you can, it's not a very well done archeological site, but you can see it. And what's so interesting is, um, is that their capital actually would have looked a lot like Jerusalem's capital city, which is a whole nother class, but I think very interesting in how it's set topographically and then also how it's built. Um, but I love that because we're standing up on the ruins of the ancient capital and the sheep are just grazing there. 
Um, anyway, and then the, the looking at, into Israel from Jordan, that's up on Mount Nebo. And you're looking across the Jordan Rift into Israel. So I want you to think about the journey that Ruth and Naomi made and look at that. So this is a big deal. And then finally, the, the men harvesting there, they're, they're harvesting. This is the barley harvest around Easter time. And um, they are harvesting by hand. And if you notice, they, the, the edges of the field are left uncut. And um, that is there in Bethlehem. So in a lot of ways, that would have been what Boaz and his men would have been doing. That's the scene. It's not so different from what Ruth would have seen. Um, yeah, so Bethlehem is a, is a primarily Arab community and small fields and by hand a lot because um, a lot of poverty and not uh, being able to afford. They leave the edges. They leave the edges. And in fact, some of these guys are still actually um, plowing and harvesting with oxen mm -hmm. and wooden implements and then scythe and scything by hand. Yeah. So, so anyway... They would be Palestinian, and many, and in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, and it's sad, it's sad, it's less and less, it's really a terrible thing. Um, Bethlehem was predominantly an Arab Christian community uh, until the last intifada, and it's become increasingly difficult for Christians to um, live safely in that community. It's really hard. But yeah, those were probably Arab Christians. Um, you know, har harvesting land that's been in their families for generations. Yeah. They're they're not gleaning, and um, I, you know that that would have that's kind of an older thing that crossed. Not it was not just part of the Jewish understanding. It also comes into Christianity in the early years of Christianity in the Holy Land. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know that anybody goes out and picks from them anymore, but they still leave a little strip. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hi. Well, thank you all. Such a joy to see you all. <laughs> and Kelly, thank you. So. <laughs> You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.